Hi, my name is Caitlin and welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ. Let's get into it. Week 5, James 5. This is the last one in the book of James. If you have studied your scripture, you know there's no more after James 5. James 5 ends it. I know some of us weren't real sure we were going to survive the James sermon series, uh, you still might not. I mean, we've got, we've got this last one to go. So, uh, but here's the deal, uh, and I, I want to hit on this real quick before we get into the sermon. I hope that in all of this, James is a hard book, right? I, I mean, it, like I can't tell you how many of you came up to me afterwards at some point during one, after one of the sermon series and said, like, that was like a sucker punch. Like, that felt like somebody just punched me in the gut with that sermon. And it's like, it's not, I, it's not me. I'm not punching anybody, right? Th- that's just the book of James. It's a hard book. But the problem is, we don't lean into hard enough. And, and with the Word of God in particular, we don't lean into the hard edges in God's Word. We don't let the gospel cut deep enough. And when we don't do that, The problem is, when the gospel doesn't cut deep, hope can't drop deep. You see that? Isn't that interesting? But but it's one of the things that makes me so sad for the American church, because we've convinced ourselves with man's logic that if we preach this gospel truth, and the gospel is truth, right? It's either the true gospel, or it's not the gospel at all. But when we preach this gospel truth, the American church has gotten afraid that if we preach this truth, it's going to hurt people and turn them away, right? And so we preach this soft gospel. We preach this this shallow gospel. But the problem is shallow gospels can only offer shallow hope. Deep gospel, the true gospel, it cuts deep so that it can drop hope all the way down till it hits bedrock. I figured last sermon series on James, everybody wants a Jeremy illustration, right? Y'all want to see my artistic skills on display for this last sermon series, so I drew this for you. I don't know if you can see it, it's kind of small. But this is the problem. This is the problem with with what I think the the American church, the seeker-sensitive church, has bought into, and, and I think it's this, you know, we've got this shallow gospel over on the left side, and then we've got the true gospel over on the right side. Both of these gospels hit our hearts, right? The problem is, when we preach the shallow gospel, we only give the Holy Spirit a butter knife. Right? Butter knives are really great for spreading butter on toast. Did you know that? They're really great for spreading jelly on toast, although I have to be honest with you all, I've skipped the whole butter knife for jelly, and I just use a spoon. I want more jelly than what a butter knife can get me, so I just use a spoon, and it does just as good a job spreading, and I get more jelly. Highly suggest the spoon option if you're you know, looking for breakfast advice. But this is the problem with the butter knife. 
when we only give the Holy Spirit a butter knife, that's as far as it can get into our heart. And look at where that bedrock is. It doesn't come anywhere near touching the bedrock of our soul. But when we allow the Spirit to use His sword, which is the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, the Spirit cuts deep, right? The Spirit cuts sharp, right? It divides thoughts and intentions, bone and marrow. I mean, it gets in there, right? And let's be real, the book of James, it hurts, doesn't it? We read these books, and if we let Scripture correct us, nobody likes to be corrected. But look at where it drops hope down to. It drops that anchor all the way into bedrock. And you know what happens? I mean, some of you know this, you know, when you're, when you're digging a fence post. If you use a butter knife to dig a fence post, where are you going to get? You're going to get a wobbly fence, right? It's probably not even going to stand up. But man alive, if you drive down and you hit bedrock and then you plant your post, that thing's not moving, right? Everybody will tell you that, right? When you build, dig until you hit bedrock. But the same thing goes with Scripture. The same thing goes. That's why Jesus says, who's the wise builder, right? Right? The wise builder is the one who builds his house on the foundation. You've got to dig to lay a foundation, don't you? And when we dig, when we let the Holy Spirit cut deep, then that hope drops deep. This is what the church doesn't have today, folks. It's why the church today is just as bad at, as the world at suffering. When the storms of life hit, because they have butter knife hope. They've got this little butter knife that's left a butter knife hole, and that's, this, that's flimsy hope. And as soon as storms hit, that hope is gone. It washes that hope right away. But ladies and gentlemen, if we let God cut us deep, he is going to drop hope that cannot be moved. And that's what I hope you found here in the book of James. It's what I hope you find today. If you haven't yet, can I challenge you? Let it cut. Lots of times, you know, when, when it starts to cut, we can have that, okay, I'm done with reading for today right? Cut the Bible plan short. Nope, 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 nope. Done, Jesus. That hurts. I'm going to go to my favorites, you know, the promises. Yes, let's just stand on some promises today. Let it cut, then claim the promises. Because when the hole has been dug, then you claim the promises, you've got promises that aren't going to move. This life can throw anything at you. That's like Job faith, right? Life threw everything it had at Job. The enemy threw everything he could at Job. And Job didn't move. Because he was rock solid in God. But you don't get that faith with a butter knife gospel. You've got to accept and embrace the true gospel. The true gospel leads to change from within. And it gives you the motivation to follow through. That's in your thoughts in your words, and in your deeds, right? And we take all of those things captive through faith and make them obedient to Christ. Only the true gospel will allow you to do that. So we've got to embrace it. So today, let's wrap it up. This is it for the book of James. 
And it wouldn't be the book of James if he didn't have at least a few haymakers to throw at us. So let's let him throw a few more and get out of it alive, hopefully. So we're going to break it down. I gave you a 3.5 points last week. I cheated a little bit and gave you one extra. So I'm going to cut it down. And you only got two today. Isn't that great news? Yay. It's going to be just as long. Don't worry. So he, James is going to open this section 5, chapter 5, with a final warning to us. And then after that, he's actually going to give us a little bit of hope. Everybody's like, ah, thank goodness. Right? But he's going to show us, as Christians, how do we get out of this world alive? Right? So, first, final warning. It wouldn't be the book of James if he didn't at least take one swing at us, right? And it is a doozy. James says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming to you. Oh, boy. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. And have lived, I'm sorry, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Quite the warning, huh? Listen, let's just shoot straight. You are not going to hell if you are rich, right? That's not in the Bible. That is not one of the forgotten Ten Commandments. It's not commandment number 11. It's not, you read through Leviticus. I know nobody actually reads Leviticus, but if you read through it, there's nothing in Leviticus that say, thou shalt not be rich, right? That's what it says. But what does it say? Be careful. Christian, be careful. Everywhere the Bible says it is hard to be rich and not put your treasure into your possessions. That's what James is teaching. That's what Jesus taught, right? What does Jesus say? It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through what? The eye of a needle right? Now look, once again, we talked about this a little bit last week, but I love it, current culture. We don't really give a rip what the, old, or what the Bible meant to the uh, people who were originally hearing the Bible, right? We don't care about the Hebrew. We don't care about the Greek. We don't care about the cultural context and all that stuff. We should, we should, that's due diligence in our study of scripture. We should care about that stuff, but we don't until it gives us a way out, right? Have you guys heard that teaching? There is a teaching out there that when Jesus was teaching this, there was a gate in Jerusalem that was called the eye of the needle, right? And so, and so what would happen is the camels would approach this eye of the needle and to pass through, the camels would have to get down like on their camel knees and like inch through this, this gate or whatever to get through. Y'all, crap, baloney, false. I, I have done the research on it. When I first read it, I was like, oh, dude, that's so cool. 
I've never heard of that before. There's a good reason you haven't heard it before. It's not real. I did my research and looked, and, and look, there's a couple super, super sketchy sources that say that that might have been the case. Super, super sketchy sources that say it might be the case. But it gives us a gray area, right? Because if it's impossible, a camel, big, right? The eye of a needle, not. That's not hard, y'all, right? That's impossible. So if that's how hard it is for a rich man to get in, but if it's just a camel on its knees scooching, <laughs> yeah, man, I'll get in there and help the camel scooch. Yeah, I can hold on to my possessions and God. It's gray all of a sudden, isn't it? Cultural context. Yay, it saved us from the wrath of God. But that's not what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is teaching. It is literally that hard. Because what's he say right after that? They're like, well, then it's impossible for anybody to get into heaven. What's he say? Yeah, you're right. But all things are possible with God. Right? Listen, ladies and gentlemen, even if you aren't rich, even if you have nothing, it's still impossible for you to get into, the hev into heaven. But with God, all things are possible. Everywhere in Scripture, y'all, I'm so, uh, clearly, we started this church because of this, but I, I'm so fed up with this idea in Christianity today that we can be self-sufficient Christians, right? P Pastor, give me a practical teaching so that I can go out and do it. You can't. Over and over again, when I read Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament alike, God says, not by your strength, not by your power. You need me every moment of every day to do anything to please me. And yet we have Christians being empowered all across the nation, all across the Western world, to go out and do their best for Jesus. Stop. Because the gospel that I preach, the gospel that I read in here, says, I can't. Jeremy Allen Metzger, in his own power, can do nothing to please God. But it says that Jesus did. That he lived a perfect life in complete and total submission to God. Only doing what the Father said. Only doing what he saw the Father do. Only saying what he heard the Father say. Jesus lived a perfect life. And now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I can too. But I've got to stay out of the way. I've got to be reliant on him for every breath that I take. So again, let's, let's look at this. Let's dive in here. We've talked a lot about how James pairs up with Jesus in the Beatitudes, right? So let's look at this. I want to look at the Beatitudes from, or from Luke's perspective. So we're going to look at this. It's uh, Luke 6, starting in verse 20. But Jesus teaches this along these lines. It says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. See, we like Matthew better, because Matthew at least gives us a little gray, right? Poor in spirit. That just means I have to be humble. Luke doesn't give us that, though, does he? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who hunger now, not for righteousness, who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, 
for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. And you know, I think we can all step back and be like, okay, all right, Jesus. Okay, I get it, I get it. Hold on loosely, this world... I get it. Yes, I like Matthew's version better. It makes me feel a little better about myself, but I can, I can live with this, right? And then Jesus says, not so fast, sweetheart. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets the same way. And it's like somebody just pulled the plug and all the gray shades just went right down the drain, didn't they? It's just black and white. Oh, church. Oh, Christian. We have built our monuments. We have done so much, spent so much to make sure that we are comfortable in this life. And Jesus says, you have received your comfort in full. We have done everything to make sure that we are well fed, that we're happy, that church is fun, right? Because nobody's going to want to come to a church that preaches this kind of stuff. That's not fun. Our hearts have been broken in the American church. Look at the church today. We are weeping and gnashing our teeth, aren't we? But it's not because of the sin in our lives. It's because the church in the United States no longer has power. It no longer has position. It no longer has political sway and prestige, Right? The outside world doesn't respect us anymore, church. Mostly because we Christians have done a real good job at gumming that up, haven't we? We've abused that. And they don't respect us anymore. But Jesus draws this scary comparison. Churches that enjoy wealth and success, that eat well, that sleep well, that are comfortable, that have fun, those are all the things that the false prophets were about in the Old Testament. Weren't they? All the king, old kings in Israel. Who'd they bring around? The prophets who were going to tell them what they wanted to hear, right? Who were going to preach their kind of gospel. Meanwhile, the prophets who were poor, the prophets who wept, who were hungry, who were hated and insulted by the church. Those were the real ones. Those were the ones that God was using to try to wake people up. Church, Christian, we have got to be the real ones. And it is going to come at a steep cost, isn't it? It's what Jesus says, not me. Don't get mad at me and send me angry emails. Don't come to the elder board afterwards and say, our church is never going to grow if Pastor Jeremy doesn't stop, what, preaching the truth? Then so be it. But that's in God's hands, not ours, right? 
we've got to be about the truth because only the truth cuts deep. So the church that speaks truth isn't popular, not with the masses and definitely not with those who are comfortable in their religion. They will do everything they can to keep their gospel. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He never does, does he? Every time you think, like, it's like shiatsu massage, right? Like, I'm going to throw up, Jesus. Like, then I'm going to keep pushing, right? He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. There's a lot of people today that really love this, right? Jesus the philanthropist. Yay, Jesus, look at him. Then he gets to this. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. Right? Everybody loves socialism until it's your turn to give up your money right? Everybody loves good deeds and generous people and all this stuff. We love Jesus' teaching when he's generous, 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 generous. Then he says, give and don't expect back. Oh, hold on, Jesus. Hold your horses, Jesus. This is my money we're talking about. When I give it, I expect to give back, get back, right? I mean, it's mine. It rubs us the wrong way, doesn't it? But why? Why does that teaching rub us the wrong way? And it's because the temptation of wealth, the temptation of riches, this is everything that Jesus and James are getting to here. The temptation is that somewhere along the line, the blessing becomes yours. Right? Somewhere along the line, when you've accumulated so much, it becomes yours yours. I've worked for this. This is mine. But where is that in scripture? Because what does God say? God says every blessing, every good and perfect thing that you have is yours, is from him, right? So when you give God's and you demand it back, whose are you really giving? Right? Can you see where wealth is so dangerous? But if we give God's, and it's truly His, we don't expect anything back. Because we understand He's just given. Guys, listen, I, we're, I'm going to get into this. But it, this isn't, we're not just talking about money, right? The same temptation lies with my family, with my children, right? Ladies and gentlemen, Elam, Jubilee, Promise, and Gideon, they are not mine. I have been given them to steward them and to raise them as their dad. I'm not their father. 
God is their father. So if God calls them to be missionaries to a Middle Eastern world where the gospel could kill them, am I going to stand in their way and say, absolutely not. That is dangerous. You cannot go. Careful, right? They are his. <laughs> and that doesn't just come when they become adults, right? They're his now. If God is telling me to send my kids to public school, now this is not a plug for public school, I promise you that, okay? But if, if he is, well, but, but I mean, Jesus, the, the curriculum they're teaching, and uh, uh, are they his or are they yours? Listen to what he's telling you and do it. Do not let your heart get wrapped up in the wrong treasure. Does that mean you shouldn't love your kids? Absolutely not. But it means that his kingdom always comes first, right? Always, with everything, with your marriage, with your children, with your job, with your ministry. His kingdom always comes first. Everything else, hold on loosely. Hold your treasures loosely because it's all God's, right? We know that theologically, right? But when these things become treasures, the temptation is that they all of a sudden become ours and they're ours to have and to hold. This is a dangerous trap. Jesus finishes, love your enemies and do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Notice, your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Do you see that? Not your reward will be great, and you will get lots of stuff back. Because this is one of my favorites. One of my favorites. You know, the Hobby Lobby stuff? This is one of my favorites that we get into here. Do not, I'm sorry, be merciful as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged, and do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Given, it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Have you guys ever heard that promise claimed? That's a prosperity gospel favorite right there, right? Hey, come on, guys, up that tithe a little bit. You bump up that tithe, and it's going to be given back to you, pressed down, shaken, and running over, right? We love it. That's not what this is teaching, y'all. That's not what it's teaching, because is this whole passage right here, what happens, y'all, when we turn things into Hobby Lobby signs? What happens? It's not Hobby Lobby's fault. It's yours. Sorry. Right? They can only fit so much on a sign. They have to take stuff out of context right? But that doesn't mean you need to forget the context when you put it on your wall, right? Pressed down, shaken, running over. What is it in regard to? Money? Wealth? Possessions? No. Money is one line in there. Do you see it? What is it in regards to? Mercy. Not judging others condemnation, being good, loving your neighbor. 
right? Stop perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ because you want your stuff. Jesus sums all of this up nicely in Matthew's account of the Beatitudes. We're just smashing them together here. But in Matthew's account, Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the trouble with wealth on this earth. And like we said, it doesn't matter how that wealth comes. I've told a lot of you guys this before, but I used it as my illustration. But that, I, a long time ago, I identified that my family is, is the stronghold in my life. That my family is that temptation for me. Because I love my family. And everybody say, well, that's great, Pastor. You should love your family. You're right. I should. I should love God more. And there came a point in my, in my walk with Jesus where somebody, it was a passage in Matthew, I don't even remember where it came from, probably the Beatitudes, because those hit hardest. But, but, you know, where Jesus talks about being prepared to leave father and mother and sister and brother and all of these things. And I read that and I was like, holy cow, God, I don't know if I could. And at, at that point in my walk, we had, Jan and I only had Elam, but I realized, wow. I am holding on too tightly to them. I've got to let go. And I've got to focus first on his kingdom. God's not saying that you shouldn't be a good husband. But church, we have made an idol out of marriage. Right? And Jan and I are super passionate about marriages, super passionate about healthy marriages and all that stuff. But look, y'all, I'm going to simplify it for you. You want a healthy marriage? Seek first the kingdom of God. And it doesn't matter if your spouse is seeking it first with you or not. If you seek first the kingdom of God, your marriage will get stronger. I promise you. I guarantee you. Dare you. Double dog dare you. Right? But legit, that's going to be our Gospel House Marriage Seminar. Jan and I will write, co-author a book. She'll write half the sentence, I'll write the other half. Seek ye first, and then she can write the kingdom of God. That's a better part of it, you know, it gives more weight. I'll give her the big punch. I'll just take the little. But for real, you want to be a better dad? Don't try to be a better dad. Over and over again, you want to be a better boss? You want to be a better person? You want to be a better Christian? Stop trying to be a better Christian. Seek first his kingdom. What's Jesus say? All these things will be added to you. Right? What does that mean? I might not be able to go on every vacation I ever wanted to go on, right? I said this to somebody. This uh, is how bad this has gotten, y'all. I said this to somebody at church once. I was like, yeah, you know, Jan and I, we just kind of realized, you know, I'm a pastor, she's a teacher. We're probably never going to have a ton of money. Like, it's just not in the cards. We're never going to be able to go on all these vacations and all this stuff. But, you know, we'd, we'd like to try, you know, going a couple nice places for the kids. And and guys seriously just like looked at me. And he's like, "That's not true. God's going to give to you guys, and He's going to bless you." And it's like, I, I don't think you get what I'm saying. God has told me 
that if I'm willing to let go of that stuff, that he's going to bless me. And it's not going to be with being able to take my family on all sorts of vacations. It's going to be with seeing my wife and my children enter into the kingdom of heaven and knowing that I let God have his way in my family. That's what the blessing is. I don't want to go on a bunch of vacations, y'all. I don't. I want to get to the end of my life, and I want to know that I have done everything that God has asked of me. And I want to know that I have put my children and my wife in the best position to do everything that God has asked of them. That comes with a cost. And if that cost means that I can't travel the world, I'm cool with that. You know, it's overrated anyway, right? Sour grapes. But for real, what are we running after in this world? Because so many people in the church assume that running after God means you're going to get all this stuff. And I think we miss it. Because we do get a lot of stuff. But it's not stuff here. It's stuff there with him. It's him. He is the stuff, right? We get him and we realize everything that he gives us. But listen, if we are going to give Jesus all of our thoughts, all of our words, and all of our deeds, we need as few distractions around us as possible. Don't we? Guys, when Adam and Eve fell, this world all of a sudden became Satan's playground. And he has everything set up in this world to keep your eyes off of Jesus. And if you guys ever, I'm telling on myself here, I am one of these, but have you ever been driving on the highway and you're behind somebody or you're in the other lane, this is even scarier, in the other lane, and you see them going to check their blind spot, but when they check the blind spot, the whole car starts to go with them? You guys, you guys know that? I, I have done that. I do that. I am guilty. So I need to make sure that I... But, but guys, look. Where your eyes go, that's where the car goes, right? When my eyes turn this way, it's, you've got to stay really disciplined to keep that car straight. So when Satan in this world is like, Hey, guys, over here. Hey, look. I've got fancy things. They shine. They're shiny. Look at the shiny right? I've got fireworks. You want fireworks? You want power, prestige, right? All the things he came at Jesus with, right? When Jesus was being tempted in the desert, he still plays them, y'all. Satan's deck's pretty short. He doesn't have a ton of cards to play. He plays the same ones over and over again, but doggone it, y'all. It's effective, isn't it? I think that's part of the reason his playbook hasn't diversified. Right? When I coached high school football, if we were running a play and it kept working, guess what we kept doing? Running that play. I watched some of these NFL games and it's like, what the heck are you doing? Keep running the same play. I don't care if people think you're an offensive genius or not. If it's working, keep running it. Why Satan keep doing the same stuff? Because it works. Because Jeremy Allen Metzger can't keep his eyes off the shiny, and when my eyes go to the shiny, guess where the car starts to go? It may be subtle, y'all. It's always subtle in the beginning, right? It's never a drastic, right? Subtle. But where your eyes go, that's where the whole car starts to go. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Church, hold on loosely. Hold on to the things of this world loosely. 
There's a reason why Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Do you know what it means to fix your gaze on something? It means you're locked in, right? It's like the horses, when they bring the horses, you know, on Main Street and they put the blinders on them. Man, I pray for that, that the Holy Spirit would give me blinders and I wouldn't be able to see the shiny stuff that I need to run after, that I think I need to run after, I should say right? Fix your eyes on Jesus, because where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. James closes his letter to the church by giving us a little bit of hope. He tells us, how are we to get out of this world alive? He gives us some tips, some encouragement to get out alive, because as Christians, this is what we want, right? We want to exit this world alive in Christ. So that even if we are dead on the outside, even if we are dead in our mortal flesh, we know if we end alive in Christ that we will be brought back to life with him someday, right? But we've got to make it out of this one alive first, alive in him. Not alive in the world, not alive in any of the other stuff, but alive in him. Jesus Christ himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. You guys remember that? We did a sermon series on it here. Go figure. Right? He said, in this world, you will have trouble. So we've got to embrace it. We've got to lean into it. I have heard way too many Christians say, I, I'll be real, I have said this too many times. I just need things to be easy right now. Anybody? Right? You're going through the ringer, the ceiling's leaking, like everything in the world's going wrong when you're supposed to be doing everything else, right? God, I just need easy right now. And Jesus kind of laughs. <laughs> in this world, you will have trouble. Right? Too many times. I, I have sat in planning meeting after planning meeting from... from churches, church staffs to the, to the top of the rung on the leadership spectrum of the church. All of these meetings, how do we make it easy for people to be disciples of Christ? You don't. And you're leading this movement? I don't know anything, y'all. I haven't gone to school nearly as long as any of you. <laughs> but I know that Jesus says, it's not easy. How do we make it easy for people to come to Christ? Now, look, I think people mean, how do we take stuff out of the way so that it's not unnecessarily difficult? I would hope that's what they mean, right? But, y'all, when did it become our responsibility to make it easy for people to come to Jesus, right? Jesus didn't make it easy for people to come to Jesus, right? There's that one, one of my favorite parts in Scripture. It just kicks church growth strategy right out the door, because all these people are starting to congregate to Jesus and his following's getting massive. And so he just says, all right, guys, whoever wants to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody's like, he's speaking metaphorically, right? Jesus says, nah, if you want to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and you have to drink my blood. And every single one of those people, except for the 12 disciples, say, yeah, 
we're out, and they leave. It's like the exact opposite of church growth strategy, right? Guys, we're getting too big. Don't worry, I'll drop an A-bomb, and we'll take care of that. But then they ask Peter, Jesus says, don't you all want to leave too? And Peter says, we have come to know that you are the Messiah. You hold the words of life. Where else will we go? Jesus wants a church who can say that. Who can say, Jesus, we have come to know that you are the Messiah. You have the words of eternal life. And there's nothing else that we want. That's not easy, is it, y'all? Really not easy. Which means Jesus is going to teach you some stuff on this road that you're not going to like. Jesus is going to ask you to do some stuff on this road that you are not going to like. But can I pose something for you? And this is going to lead really well into our 2023 Gospel House business meeting because this is the vision, y'all. An easy church is a broken church. If it is easy for you to go to church, if it is easy for you to be the church, then your church is broken. If the church, if, I'm sorry, if church is easy, then the church isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing. That doesn't mean that we just preach hard messages. It's not, I'm not going to do another five weeks of James again just because it was hard. That's not, that's not what that means, right? But it means church, we have got work to do don't we? And it's not inside this building. We got work to do here too, but it's not just here. It's out there, right? We have got to get out there, and we've got to get uncomfortable. This does not mean that you are not going to hear this in our vision casting and in the 2023 business meeting. It does not mean we need a missions department. It does not mean the Gospel House in 2023, we're forming a missions department and we're going to be about missions. Guys, I personally, this is just a Jeremy thing, not saying this is how the Spirit feels about everything. I think missions departments, I think it's one of the greatest travesties in the church today. Because the problem is when we have a missions department, we compartmentalize. Don't you? Right? I give to mission. I don't have to be on mission. Show me. Show me anywhere where there's a missions department in this book. Let's go to the book of Acts, how about? Where's their missions department? Oh, there isn't one, because they're all on mission, right? Look, y'all, if you have been called as a disciple of Jesus Christ, and every single one of you sitting in this room, I keep calling you. If you're not answering the door, that's on you. Jesus is knocking. He has called you as his disciple, You've got to be missional. The second you step out of this, these doors, even while you're inside these doors, you have got to be on mission from Jesus. This idea that you can just, that, oh, well, that's the missions department job. Guys, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Satan would love nothing more than just 5% of the church to be on mission. Because he knows when the entire church is on mission, that's the kind of church that shakes the gates of hell. That's the kind of church that when we let out of here on Sunday mornings, demons don't want to stand. They're like, get out the way, y'all. 
We were going to go to Bob Evans and mess with some people after church, but we know they're going to Bob Evans. Don't want to have none of that. Right? Come on, somebody. That's who we're called to be. We have got to be on mission every single day. Jeremy's pastor hat doesn't come off when I leave the gospel house, right? And, and look, me number one. I've, I've heard, oh, this irked me so bad. Somebody told me once, you know, pastors don't beget sheep, right? Pastors shepherd the, fle- the, the flock. They don't beget sheep, meaning pastors don't have to go out and, and convert new people. They shouldn't be going out and evangelizing because they're supposed to, where? Where does the word of God say that? Honestly, what I think is some pastor probably doesn't like evangelizing. It makes him uncomfortable. And so he says, well, yeah, pastors just shepherd the flock. They don't, they don't beget sheep. Come on, man. Come on. Every moment of every day, if I am walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, there is no part of me that is my own. Which means when Jesus says, talk to that guy. Talk to the waitress at Bob Evans. Tell her about me. Tell her that you attend a church where she is going to be loved and accepted and brought into the flock. Tell her that you serve a Savior who sees her and knows her and loves her right where she's at. Then guess what I do? Exactly what the Spirit tells me to do. That's what being missional is about. And it's not just for pastors. And it's not just for lay leaders. And it's not just for elders and deacons and whatever the title you want. Every single one of you. Do you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you or not? Right? Follow him. Do what he says. That's one of our core things here at the Gospel House. Discipling is easy, y'all. And we disciple with with the saved just as much as we disciple with unbelievers. Because all I do when I disciple is I just tell people what the Holy Spirit's telling me. You want to call it something weird and ooh, prophecy and all these gifts and all that? Call it whatever you want, right? But if the Holy Spirit is going to tell you somebody's backstory, say, oh yeah, you know, this girl, she grew up in a broken family and now she really has trust issues because she didn't trust her dad. If the Holy Spirit's telling you that, say it, y'all right? Who cares what it's called? Well, that's operating in the gifts, and I don't believe in that stuff. Shut it. Would you just stop and do it, right? Sorry, that, I'm James, I'm, right? I'm in James mode. I'm just throwing punches. I'm not, not worried about, but, but right, we make it, into, and, and guys, that's the church's fault, right? That's, that's Christian's fault, because we've made these things weird, right? We've made speaking in tongues weird, and we've made prophecy weird, and so, we, you know, there's all these weird things about it, But if the Spirit's saying it, just do what the Spirit's telling you to do. Just say what the Spirit's telling you to say. We disciple with others as the Holy Spirit is currently discipling with us. It's super easy, and literally anyone can do it, right? You don't have to be a priest or a pope or anything else. Everybody who has the access to the Holy Spirit, and if you've given your heart to Jesus, you have access. Everyone can do it. You just listen to what he's saying, and you say it. That's all it takes. I got way off of James. Here we go. Here's our keys to getting out. This is what James says. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. 
The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. We get this messed up idea of what patience means in, in the church today, right? Lots of times Christians, you know, will go through seasons where we work really hard, and then we have seasons of waiting on the Lord. Because when I wait on the Lord, I don't have to do anything, right? Listen, y'all, if you are waiting on the Lord and you're not doing anything, you're not waiting right, right? How many, how many of you know a farmer? You know farmers, you know a farmer, right? Farmers are the hardest working individuals I, I think I have ever met, right? They work their tails off. Are farmers patient? You better believe it. Are p- farmers doing nothing while they're being patient? Not a chance. Show me a farmer who is doing nothing while he's being patient, and I will show you an unsuccessful farmer. Right? Over and over again, these are the analogies we're given in Scripture, right? Growing Christians, growing a church, growing a whatever. It's like growing fruit, right? But while you wait, you are at work, right? It's what James is saying here. Be patient until the coming of the Lord, but that doesn't mean that we sit back and wait. That doesn't mean that we just go to worship nights and prayer rallies and all of that stuff, right? We do have a worship night coming up here this coming Wednesday, by the way, so don't forget that. But that's not what that means, right? That's not all that waiting is. We have been given commands in Scripture to tell everyone we know this gospel of Jesus Christ that we have been entrusted with, which means that while we wait on the Holy Spirit, we're still working. We're not just sitting back. Waiting doesn't mean we come here and we just get on our knees and pray. That's not all that waiting entails. Waiting means working. We have got to be working, church. Next is where James starts to slide these concepts together, and I really like where he takes this. Uh, The first time I read it, I didn't see it, and then the Holy Spirit showed it to me the next time. But he says this, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. What do we get again from James? Don't judge. This is the third time, y'all. Third time James is saying don't judge. What should we probably not be doing? Judging. Yeah. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Here's what's interesting to me. Sandwiched between these two concepts of patience and suffering, we see this, do not complain against one another don't we? Isn't that interesting? It's almost like they don't belong there, but we know that everything in the word of God belongs there. Because for you to be patient, for you to endure suffering, for any of us to do those things, we have to do it together. Why is judgment such a sin? Why is it so vital that we don't judge, that we don't complain against one another? And it's because it ruins relationship, right? Judgment ruins relationship, twofold. Because number one, when we judge, 
We're showing that we don't trust God to do a good enough job. Don't we? Well, gee, when you say it out loud. (laughs) But it's the truth, right? The only reason I judge other people is because I don't trust that God's going to do a good enough job of it. So I sit in that chair. But it's not my chair to sit in. So it shows a wrong relationship with God. Number two, it shows a wrong relationship with others. Doesn't it? That part's kind of obvious. Because if I have really been saved by the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the least I should be doing to others is extending that same grace. Right? Not judging them, but extending grace and loving them as I was loved, as God was patient with me and brought me along. That's how patient I need to be with others. If we are going to make it out of this world alive as Christians in Christ, we need to be united. We need to be united with God, and we need to be united with each other. Look at how James continues this. It says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Be honest with one another. What do lies do? Divide or unite? Divide, right? Stay united. If you're suffering, pray. If you're happy, praise, right? If you're sick, have the elders anoint you and pray with you together, together, together. And it doesn't stop. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Have you heard that one? Hobby Lobby. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James hits on something big here, y'all. You guys know I hate this. This is the Facebook theology, right? We like Facebook theology because it's easy, right? If there's a giant in your life, it's because God sees a David in you. (laughs) Stinks, right? That's our problem, though. We read through the Old Testament, and we read it like we read Lord of the Rings, right? Well, I want to be Aragorn. Oh, well, I'll be David. Oh, I'll be Moses, right? Guys, what's James saying here? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. What's that mean? Elijah was just as screwed up as you. (laughs) Right? The Bible tells us Jesus Christ is the only human being who was without sin. Right? So Elijah had a sinful nature just like us. That he probably didn't conquer. Right? Elijah had some weak moments in Scripture that we see. That's a sermon series for another day, though. 
But we look back at all of these people in the Bible like they're these, oh my goodness, if I could just get up to David's status. Whoo boy, then I'd really have it made. Stop, stop, stop. Because on the day of Pentecost, God released the Holy Spirit. And now it is God himself living inside of you. Not David, not Moses, not, not none of those guys. God himself. Which means if it was God giving Elijah the power to do all of these miracles, to call down fire on the prophets of Baal, to do all of this stuff, you can do the same. You're telling me I can walk out these doors right now and I can go into Walmart and that guy who was talking trash and wouldn't give me my refund back, I can cause it to rain down fire on? No, I'm not telling you that because my guess is that's not what the Holy Spirit is going to tell you to do, right? But what was Elijah? Well, he was some superpower human, right? He was, no, what was Elijah? Elijah was obedient to God, Right? Y'all, there is nothing impossible for you. You walk out of these doors, I promise you. I don't promise you. Don't take Jeremy's word for it. God promises you. There is nothing in this book you cannot do. More than the things written in this book you can do. Signs, wonders, miracles. Stop making it about the wrong thing, though. Don't walk out these doors and pull up your sleeves and, all right, Jesus, let me shoot lightning bolts like Thor out of my fingers and stop. Walk out these doors and say, God, I am going to be obedient to whatever it is you have for me. Jeremy is completely out of the way. I'm done. I'm done living for myself. I am living for you and you alone. Have your way. And you walk out these doors, and he will do anything through you. There is nothing our God cannot do through a person completely surrendered to him. Our problem is we won't let go. I love this last promise in here. Because James tells us you're not going to get everything right. Right? That's one of the great things about walking together as Christians. Right? We can, we can walk in the Spirit. We can do these things. That's one of the things. Like if the Holy Spirit's telling you something, come up to the person and tell me. I love it. I love it when, when I disciple with people. We'll talk to each other. Uh, my brother-in-law, Ethan, some of you know Ethan, we'll, we'll talk to one another. And Ethan will say, well, I think the Lord told me this and this and this. But then he always ends and says, is that, am I getting that close? And I'm straight with him. If it's not close, guess what I say? Oh, sweetheart, yeah, that was great. You did a great job. No, no, that's not discipling. I say, you know, man, it just, it wasn't. You kind of missed there. Okay, all right. But then what's Ethan know now? He knows that on the next one, okay, so I think I got this wrong, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a better job listening, and I'm not gonna let my flesh get in the way next time. What happens with Jeremy, right? I do the same thing. But I hope that if I tell you guys something and say, like, this is what the Lord gave me for the gospel house, and it doesn't sit well with you, maybe not stand up in the middle of church and be like, that's wrong, pastor. Maybe, like, email me or something. That'd be a little nicer. But, but I hope you'd say something, right? If I preach something and you think, like, dude, that's just not right. That's not, I did a study once, and that's not what it said at all. Email me, right? I have just as much growing as you do. 
Just because they call me the pastor of the church, that doesn't mean that I get it all right. But what's James say? James says that even though I don't get it right, if I turn one person back, if I turn one person back from going to hell, that covers a multitude of sins. Y'all, we've got to be about the Father's business of snatching people from hell. We have got to stop being so afraid of the world and we've got to run into it. Because look, y'all, I want as many grace points as I can get. This isn't what that's teaching. That's not that at all. That's not the gospel. This isn't the more sinners you save, the more grace points you get to screw it up. No, that's not what that means, right? That's Catholic. That's not us. <laughs> Bad joke, sorry. But that, that's not what that means. But what it does mean is as long as we keep our hearts pure. And look, y'all, you can't keep your own heart pure, right? You've got to trust the Holy Spirit to keep your heart pure. But as long as you keep your heart pure and, and run after obedience to the Holy Spirit, snatching others from the flames of hell, God's going to cover the rest, right? I'm not going to get 100% of my theology correct. I'm not going to get 100% of my doctrine right. I'm going to get to heaven and there are going to be just as many things I have to learn about God as everybody else. We can't fit him in our boxes. He's too great. He's too big. But if I can turn people back and get them to start on a walk with Jesus, if I am patient, if we do it together, church, we will cover over a multitude of sins. Which brings me to where I want to close. And of course, it's ragging on all of you Hobby Lobby fans. I referenced it, right? Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Some translations say the prayer of a righteous man are powerful and effective. Can I tell you a little story? When I was uh, a senior in high school, I actually, I guess I wasn't anymore. I had just graduated from high school. But I remember I got so many cards that had this verse in there, right? Not the whole thing. That would take too much ink. Just the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. My senior year, I was not a great Christian. I was I, barely living for the Lord. I was not a very good person. I met a girl my senior year of high school. Her name was Jana Robison, um, and I knew that she went to church. And so that summer, I started going to church to try to impress her. Um, and that was really where God grabbed me. That was the summer between my senior and freshman year. That was when I was, uh, I was saved, and her dad prayed with me. But up to that point, I, I really wasn't walking for the Lord. And I read these little, this little Hobby Lobby quote. It was Hallmark they were Hallmark cards. Hobby Lobby doesn't do cards that I know of. But I read it and I thought, well, I'm done. No point in me praying. Because I'm not righteous. So why would my prayers be powerful or effective? Right? And unsaved Jeremy understood something that saved Jeremy didn't get for the longest time. Unsaved Jeremy got something that the majority of people in the church naming and claiming this promise still don't get. You aren't that man. 
or woman. Amen? Amen. Right? You're not. See, it took me a while. It was actually a, a long time ago. Someone had wronged me, and I wanted vengeance. Right? I was a Christian, too. <laughs> but so I prayed, Psalm 26, 1 through 3, and it starts, Vindicate me, O Lord. For I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in you without wavering. And I prayed that every morning I got up. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have trusted in you without wavering. And one day, I finally sobered up and was like, wait a minute. (laughs) God, I haven't trusted in you without wavering. What am I doing here? I can't pray this prayer, right? Thankfully, at that same time, I was reading this absolutely incredible, 100% recommended book called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And in that book, Bonhoeffer says, when we read the Word of God, we must read everything through Jesus Christ. When we claim the promises of God, we must claim them through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When we pray, we must pray through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Every word in this book is his, is him, and is accomplished and fulfilled in him. And you know what that made me realize? When I go to Psalm 26 and I pray, Vindicate me, O Lord. For I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Praise the Lord of my soul. I do not stand alone. When I stand and pray that prayer, Jesus Christ himself is behind me. And it's his righteousness that I stand on. Because I remembered this verse when I was going through this whole thing. And when I read that quote from Bonhoeffer, I realized for the first time, my prayers are powerful and effective. But it's not because I'm a righteous man. It's because I pray them through and in Jesus Christ who is. And there is no one more righteous than that. There is no prayer more powerful than the prayer offered in Christ. And it's funny too because when we take the verse in context, it makes sense, right? The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And the reason we don't get it is because we cut off the first part. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Well, time out. If you're righteous, then why do you need to confess your sins? Oh, context. See how it makes a world of difference, right? And can I just put in a plug? I do this every time I get a chance. Someday some of y'all are going to take me up on it. Confess your sins, y'all. You do not need to go to a priest to do it, but you should absolutely go to a trusted brother or sister in Christ and do it. Look, you can go in your prayer closet. You can pray by yourself. It is so much more powerful if you confess your sins with a brother or sister in Christ. Brothers with brothers, sisters with sisters. I don't suggest crossing unless you are married then confess with your spouse but confess your sins y'all confess your sins it is a tool that jesus christ himself has blessed you with we don't view it as a blessing do we we view it as a curse confess your sins with one another 
It is so powerful. I cannot stress it enough. We need confession. But the only way we can stand on any promise of Scripture, the only way we can pray any prayer that is righteous, that is powerful, that is effective, the only way we can do anything in this life is if we stop trying to stand on our righteousness and we start standing in Christ's. But guess what, y'all? Stop me if you've heard this before. You can't stand in Christ man's way. Right? Have we been paying attention to the book of James? Right? If we're going to stand in Christ, we've got to do it God's way. So you say you believe. Do you? I want my prayer to be powerful and effective. Do you? Then we have to pray righteous prayers. And we cannot pray those man's way. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And that's not just for our prayer life, y'all. Our thoughts can be made righteous through Christ. Our words can be made righteous through Christ. Our deeds can be made righteous through Christ. Your faith can only become real through Christ. We cannot get there in our own power. Right? We cannot get there in our own power. So why do we keep trying? Give your life over to him. It is so scary to let go, isn't it? It's, it, sometimes it's the darkest things about us that are the scariest to let go of because we've held on to them for such a long time. But I promise you, y'all, God promises you in his word, if you let go, your life will truly begin. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you are pointing to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house backslash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.